invite you to turn with me then to the passage William read from Job chapter 18. And in so doing, as we read of uh, Job's friend Bildad speaking, to recall what the same friend said to Job earlier in the book. This is the second time that Bildad, Job's friend, has spoken to him uh, in the circumstances of Job's great affliction and the removal of his health. If one of the other friends, Eliphaz, had argued to Job that this affliction he suffered was his because Job must have done something wrong to deserve it. This man, Bildad, argues the same thing, but from another angle. Instead of arguing it, uh, looking primarily at Job, he makes this argument looking primarily towards God. At least that's what he thinks he's doing. He argues that Job is and has experienced what he has because God always does what is just and right. And therefore, this affliction which has come to Job's house is because he must have done something wrong. He said back in chapter 8 and verse 3, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? The suffering then, Bildad was arguing, was as a direct consequence of God being just and righteous. And because he had suffered, it must have been because Job had done something wrong or wicked, or his children had done something wrong and wicked. He even said as much in chapter 8, in verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. He implied that the loss of his children was because of their sin. He also said there in chapter 8 that if Job turned to God, God would restore him. He spoke of the vanity of the things of the world, implying that Job's suffering was a consequence of vain living, despite the appearances of a man living righteously, his friend accuses him of vain living, that he has been putting confidence in the things that are passing. Now, he's no evidence of this in Job's life, but that's his theory, that's his explanation, and that Job is experiencing what he has been, the suffering and the pain and anguish, because this is the consequence of vain living. And so in Bildad's judgment here, uh, and it's, it's in chapter 8, uh, and then also we find it at the beginning here in chapter 18 as well, that um, he speaks about Job's responses, Job's replies, where he, Job is 
is arguing that, uh, uh, that it's, it, it mustn't be because of something particularly he has done. He, he, Job affirms, and as we do, the righteousness of God, that God does not pervert justice, and the Almighty does not pervert the right. He, and we would agree with that, where Job comes to disagree, and where uh, also we must reflect on these things, is in the application of that truth, so as to say that any affliction or any suffering must be a direct consequence of the wrongdoing that a person has made. And so then you see what happens is that when someone suffers or when someone afflicts, is afflicted, someone comes along and says, it must be because of something you've done. And it's not only in the ancient times that we uh, read or learn of people saying that, yes, to friends, but in the modern day as well. Uh, they're, they're in the modern day, uh, isn't it? Uh, the case, uh, you may have heard of it um, uh, too. Someone is suffering, someone is afflicted, and a friend comes along and says, now what is it that you've done? What, what is it that needs to, to change? What is it that, that you need to, to, to turn from, even repent of? But as we uh, will we'll see, uh, and I hope we can see that Bildad's assertions are misplaced and misapplied to Job. There is at the same time much to glean from what Bildad is saying, his speech on the wicked and the consequences of wickedness. And uh, that in itself is, uh, is worth spending time in this chapter as, as these things are, are, are laid out to bear. Uh, where there is vain living, where there is uh, wicked living, where there is godless living. See how the, the truth of that is exposed here with these verses. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. Um, with vain living, there's the desire for uh, one to have their, their name embedded on the earth and the things of the earth. But as it is, his memory perishes from the earth. He sought a name for himself, but there is no name in the street. He is thrust out from light into darkness and driven out of the world. This is an example um, of, of um, truths that are expressed here with respect to wickedness and and the, the, the way of wickedness, the way of the godless. But it's not applicable, and this is the, the matter um, that's before us here in this book, it's not applicable for Job, because Job is a righteous man. Job is an upstanding man. That's been told to us in the first chapter. So also has the cause of his affliction been told to us in the first chapter, which his friends do not know but they assume they do know. 
and they speak accordingly. And it, it, it brings to us um, uh, the importance then of when one is suffering or when one is in affliction, that we take care not to presume. We take care not to presume. His friends here are presuming that they know what the cause is of Job's suffering. But as the book reveals to us in the opening chapters, the cause is really quite different. It's not because of what Job has done. It's because of this uh, accusation that's taken place from the pit of hell against God, that God, his work, is not a genuine work. And this matter here is centering upon God's work being a genuine work. Satan has said, um, Job, uh, he's only for you, God, because of the comforts that you've given him, for the successes that you've surrounded him with. But take them away, and he will turn against you. God, um, who knows the the genuineness of his work, proves the genuineness of his work, and that is what is taking place in the course of the book of Job. But let us also... Notice here um, in this chapter some of the differences there are between this chapter and the previous time that Bildad spoke, because there are signs, signals to us here in this chapter that it's not only Bildad is, uh, uh, that uh, he's, he's laying this accusation at Job's door, he's also losing his temper with Job. He's also losing his temper with Job. Now, it's, it's evident from the brevity of the, uh, the introduction there in verses 1 to 4. And if you compare it to the other introductions and the speeches of his friends, this introduction is shorter, much shorter than most of the introductions from his friends. He's tired of kind of laying a foundation for Job, and now he just wants to get to this point which he's laying at his door that this must be a result of what he perceives as Job's wickedness. And not only do we see it with the brevity of his losing his temper, with the brevity of what he says, but then also as he enters into this... um, uh, monologue of of the uh, what the uh, what the, the the wicked reap it's also evident that this is what he thinks of job he doesn't say it directly but he's saying it indirectly this is what he thinks of job and notice also in the difference between chapter eight and here in chapter eighteen that at the end of chapter 8, he held out hope for Job. Behold, in verse 20, God will not reject a blameless man nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. But here in chapter 18, any, any branch of, of hope is, is gone. No, he, he has lost his, his temper with Job. Um, 
And also, as we see it with the form, also with the content of what he says as well, especially there in these opening, these sharp uh, and short expressions here in the opening of chapter 18. Verse 2, how long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. The King James Version, which I'd like to read to you, uh, makes this even more pronounced, this sharpness in the way that he speaks to uh, and a loss of temper with him. How long will it be ere ye make an end of words? He's saying, he's saying to, to Job, when are you going to finish speaking? Mark, and afterwards we will speak. And it's telling of one who is tired and fed up of his friend speaking. We'll come to verse 4 in a short time. But um, the sustained comment on the plight of the wicked, as we have said, the direction of these words, that these are, on the whole, to Job, as is brought to our attention in verse 2, when he's addressing Job, it becomes indirect in verse 5 to 21, but you know what he's saying. He's speaking to his friend. And he withholds any uh, hope from, from Job here. Now, why might Bildad be getting angry, impatient? with Job here. One cause would be, and he's himself has a lack of patience in this circumstance. He's unwilling to wait. He's unwilling to wait upon the Lord in this matter. He must end the matter. He must do it uh, himself. And um, what's brought to our attention then here is also to keep this in mind for times of suffering and affliction, that God does ordain it, and God sets the limits of it, and God brings the end to it. One way or another, he brings an end to it. And we must be patient. We must wait for him. Bildad thinks he must sort it out himself, and he's angry that Job isn't listening. So what he does then, you see that the passage here is here in the course of the book. To, 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 to keep in mind, he's already spoken to Job. Job has rejected his analysis. So what does Bildad do? And here we have a, a word of caution here um, for ourselves, if this kind of course of events takes place, um, if our analysis is not fitting, not in keeping, notice we have these examples in the Bible of what not to do as well as what to do. What Bildad tries to do then is to further impress his opinion on Job. He doesn't listen to Job. He doesn't really listen to him. 
he seeks to further impress his opinion on him. His argument is the same here as it was in chapter 8, that um, God does not pervert the uh, pervert justice. He does not pervert the right. And therefore, it must be because of uh, what Job has done wrong that this has come to his home. His argument is the same, but here it's packaged more sharply, more directly, and he escalates in his language. You see this today as well, when proud and stubborn, angry men fail with their arguments. What are they then inclined to do in their pride and stubbornness and anger? Not to change their argument, but rather to intensify the argument with their words and actions, one being the loss of temper. So the, te- the loss of temper is designed to instill the argument, um, to insist that one is right. And also that is combined with an attack on the person's credibility or character. So it's no longer about reasoning with someone. It's now about uh, instilling what one's opinion is by uh, character assassination. And, and this, is, this is the kind of thing that, um, you know, it's, it's uh, around in our own time. It's very prominent in our own time. And we need to be taking care that we are not ourselves contributing to it. Here is one whose aim is to press their... It's a friend, but the friend has become an opponent. And, and now it's about making them submit. Remember, our Lord Jesus faced that same kind of attack. When he entered into Jerusalem... He was approached by various groups who thought they could trap him, set out difficult puzzles for him to see if they could catch him out in his words. They tried to make him say something for which he could be arrested, but on every single occasion they failed. They failed in these efforts, they failed in their arguments. So what did they do? Did they withdraw? Did they, did they stand back and, and uh, begin to ask, could this really be the one that he says he is and two people say he is? No. What they did was they continued. But this time they came back with fire and personal attacks, uh, attempts to uh, discredit the man, attack the man, even physically attack the man. Putting, they discredited him, putting words into his mouth. They slandered him and mocked him and beat him. The cross they made him bared, the nails they drove through his hands and his feet, the crown of thorns, the robe, the sign above his head. It was all designed 
to discredit him. Yet none of it was successful. It's the, the, uh, the, the, the greatness of, of Christ. You think, well, what would it be if I came under that kind of attack? What would I be like? And Christ came under that. And all of it was designed to discredit him. All of it was designed to impose one person's viewpoint or a group, of, uh, a group viewpoint upon him. Yet it all failed. None of it was successful. You see that they tried to discredit him from being the son of God with their arguments. And they failed. So then they attacked him in order to try and discredit him as the Son of God. And they failed in that again. And so that the Roman centurion who stood by the cross and witnessed this, and even as a... had some responsibility in it, as a Roman guard, he stood by and he watched this unfold. And he came to the conclusion, surely this man is the Son of God. Let's look at verse 4, especially. It's here I'd like for us to spend the rest of our time. Well, as I say, there's other verses here that are well worth the time, of course. You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? You see what Job is being told here from his friend. He's being told by his friend, effectively, Job, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Do you think that you are an exception to the rule? That somehow, Job, there's something that sets you apart? That you um, should argue against this uh, argument that Bildad has made that because God is, is just and, uh, and right, that his suffering must be a result of what he has done wrong? Now we affirm the first part, that God is just and God is right and God doesn't pervert justice and he doesn't pervert the right. But the question here is in the application of these matters. For Bildad is saying, if someone, let us depersonalize a little from Job to a broader um, application, He's saying, in effect, if someone suffers a tragedy or a calamity, it's because they've, in some way, brought it upon themselves. And so he said what he has. And then he enters into a speech about the, the wicked. And as he said, there's much there. Um, and it's all there for us to attend to, as to the... Uh, what the, the wicked reap before God. 
But here we would dispute, as Job does, and the application to Job's particular case. And that's Job's complaint to Bildad. And later on, that's God's complaint to Bildad as well. Because if you turn over to chapter 42, verse 7, God speaks and he chastises Job's friends. And what he says is this, you have not spoken rightly of me as Job has. So then, consider this, dear friends, that in misapplying what he has to Job, he's not only doing Job a disservice, he's doing God a disservice. God has spoken. You've not spoken about me right, he says to Bildad. He's been misconstruing the way in which God sovereignly reigns over the world. And I hope that in ways um, we can be helped then today in reading this chapter and with the help of those who've gone before us in the course of uh, the history of the church uh, who've deliberated on these texts. And with God's Spirit among us, we are led also ourselves to see something more of the sovereign and perfect reign of our Father over all things. A matter that is raised in this chapter is God's providence here in verse 4 and the wicked. Bildad is of the view, as are his friends for that matter, that Job's affliction must be the result of his wickedness. Now, it is true that God does not pervert justice or pervert the right But that does not mean that in the course of God's providence, every sin is immediately met with its full penalty or every affliction is a result of sin. God's providence over the world is more nuanced than that. His governance of his creation is more detailed than that. And... um, And as it is that, it also is for us a a cause of perplexion. But then, as we consider that too, a cause for rejoicing in God and giving thanks uh, to him. Because as Christians, we also find that as we go through life, we find God's providence has been different from what we Expect it, and we struggle with that. But then as we struggle with that, we turn to God's word. And there we discovered that God's people in the past struggled with the same things. They asked the same questions. They're in God's word. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer affliction? Why is it that There are cases where justice is met in the world and cases where it is not. Why is it that there are cases where lifetimes pass without the guilty being discovered, if at all? Why is it that we can tell of some who treat others badly as a matter of course, and have great success in the world. 
while others who treat others well as a matter of course experience little success in the world? Why is it that God's law is broken, yet God often seems to let the matter pass in silence? As it says in Psalm 119, verse 26, your law has been broken. Now is the time for you to act. All of these questions are more and more are perplexing to us. But it's worth commenting, I think, on this, that these are the questions of Christians. These are the questions of God's people. And these are the things that perplex us but they don't seem to perplex the wicked. It seems the wicked are caught up in what they're doing to have time to consider the providence of God. Why then does God allow this, and why are we led to these questions? One reason is God's providence and its design is for our good. We know that as the Scripture reveals it. He is working all things, the perplexing things too, for the good of those who love him. So in what way are these perplexing things for our good? Well, one result of it is, as a Christian, is that we are brought through these perplexing matters to seek God and to depend upon him and to be brought again and again and again to lean on him. Because if everything made sense to us, if everything made immediate sense to us, our inclination would not be to turn to God. It would not be to rest in God or seek. We would not seek answers or help if it all made sense. We'd be inclined to depend on ourselves, and with that, not think that we need God's help because everything makes sense to us. And we might think then, what do we need God for? And then we would think the same as the godless because that is what they think. They think we don't need him. And they say as much but they are deceived in their thinking because the truth of the matter is that we are dependent on God for all things in every moment of every day. Without him, there is nothing that is. So we can see, though we feel perplexed, that even that is a kindness from God to us because it leads us to him, to find our rest in him, to depend on him so that we are perplexed but not crushed. And not crushed because he has given his Holy Spirit to us. What else may we say positively of God's providence and that he works it in order to lead us to himself We turn to the word and we discover and experience also tells it to us that God doesn't govern the world in a mechanical way as Bildad was 
expressing. As though every good work is met with its immediate reward, or every sin is met with its immediate righteous penalty. The effect of God's justice. And as the Bible opens up to us, that is shown to us to have been the case in this world from the beginning. As there we read of uh, the Garden of Eden and we read of uh, our first parents turning from God and eating from the forbidden tree to which God had said, eat this day and you'll surely die. And in, in, our, in one respect, they did die as they ate that tree. There was a spiritual death. But we notice also that God in his providence gave a time before the bodily death. That, that God provided a, a time. He, he, didn't, he didn't meet the, uh, the, the action with its full and righteous response as he might have, where he might have caused the two to perish there and then. No. God in his providence and his kindness gave time, relented from causing the man to perish, to allow time to speak to the man and to offer the gospel to our first parents. If there are two places, however, where we do see a meeting together of sin and its penalty, righteousness and its reward, it is at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and at the tomb where he rose from the dead. Because the Bible says to us of Christ on the cross, he became sin. And as he became sin for us, he met the penalty, death. But then, as he is righteous, there was no sin in him. The sin which he died for was the sin he took from us, he bore in our place. This righteous Son of God, we see, at very least, we see the beginning anyway, don't we, of the reward that is His as God raised Him up from the dead. And with that, broadcast to the world this is my Son. This is my righteous Son through whom you're justified before me. And Christ has been appointed judge of the nations. We are to remember that when we're thinking of providences, difficult providences, there are matters of providences, many matters that we don't have access to knowing. But we do know who does know, that God knows. There are secret things that belong to him. But the day is also coming when uh, what, uh, uh, what has been hidden will be revealed. And it's only on that final day, 
It's not yet, but it's, it's then on that final day that every good work will receive its reward and every sin will receive its penalty in full. That day is a day to us unseen, but that also fits with what we believe and are called to believe, that we are to look to the things that are unseen. And as we look to the things that are unseen, we are helped in living through these difficult providences of suffering and affliction. And, and, and why and, and how long we are, we, are, we are to look to the things that are unseen, to the God who is on the throne, to his full and final working of all things, we as the people of the Old Testament and the New Testament are called to believe. Now worldliness is as though there is no God and no day of reckoning. So the world carries on as though there isn't this day to come. The scriptures also speak of that, for example, in Psalm number 10. And the world carries on blindly, presuming that because every good work isn't met immediately with its reward or every sin immediately with its righteous affliction, that there will be no justice and wickedness increases and, and life is an opportunity for sin and wickedness prospering. But what is that in the hands of God? It's been likened the ways of the wicked who refuse God and refuse to turn to God and refuse to lean on him or seek him in his providence. In the hands of God, the ways of the wicked have been likened to the fattening of a pig. Filled up with worldliness. Filled up with wickedness. Filled up with what is displeasing to God. But what for? It's blind to them because they are blinded in sin. The pig has no idea that it's being fattened for the slaughter. That there's this day of reckoning to come. That there's this day of judgment to come. And that the world blinded in sin is being led to the judgment of God. But God, God also has reached out, hasn't he, with his son. That each and every one would, in coming to him, be spared from it. If only the world would come to him. And so it would be also for us. Our future would be the same were it not for his grace to us. His grace to us in Christ. He was afflicted. He was oppressed like a lamb that is what? That is led to the slaughter. He did it for us. He did it for God's glory. He did it for you and me. He took our place like a lamb led to the slaughter. And so there's that text in Zechariah where this is brought to our attention where it says, uh, Awake, O sword, against whom 
Who, who is God's righteous sword of judgment going to come upon first? His Son. So that whoever should believe in Him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Let us then give ourselves to look to what is unseen, to God in faith who is on the throne, to observe that the secret things belong to the Lord, to believe that there is a day that God has promised where every good work in Christ will be rewarded and every sin outside of Christ receives its penalty. And hence we must look to Christ for the relief that is needful in the present day from our sins. There on the cross, he became sin and became our substitute. And so his is the grace that enables us to come to him to be cleansed as the way that the um, New Testament speaks of it, or the people of God. Here are those who came to him to wash their garments. So they, they came to him and confessed their sins to him, to be cleansed from, uh, from sin. That's the, the pattern for us. That's the path for us to follow, to come to our great high priest and to come in confession of sin and to be cleansed. The one who provides this full cleansing of our sin because his grace enables us to be cleansed, to no longer be under the law, but under God's grace, and to live freely now because his atonement for us is a full atonement. He has left nothing to chance. It's comprehensive, complete, and by the power of the blood of Christ, God brings us to be reconciled to God and our Heavenly Father so that Yes, there are difficult providences, but there is a God who is enthroned above these providences, and even in them we are helped as we are brought to behold him in love and in faith. Let us seek him together now in prayer, shall we? Let us pray. Our Father,